Welcome to Dragon Talk. I'm Greg Tito. I'm Shelly Mazzanobel. We are here to talk about the Dungeons and the Dragons in an official capacity on this podcast. That's right. That's what we do here. That's right. Uh, we're gearing up for Storm King's Thunder, which is coming out very soon. It's uh, an amazing adventure that deals with giants uh, taking over and or rampaging the Forgotten Realms. Uh, and speaking of which, we have a new segment called Lore You Should Know, where we're delving into topics about the Forgotten Realms, ones that you may be familiar with and ones that you may not. Which I believe was actually something, feedback from people, from listeners. That's right. That we listened to. That's what feedback- Because we're those kind of people. We listen to feedback and we listen to it. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah. That's like we the transaction. Listen. Where did we get that feedback, Shelley Mazzanobel? Probably Twitter. Or? As a rating iTunes. and a review on iTunes, there I you go. I try to stay away from it. I'm scared. I don't want to see something bad. Well, I will. I will uh, take all the bad uh, right. onto well, myself, uh, like a good. <laughs> you're a good friend. Like a good D and D. You're a good Kathy Lee. Exactly. Right. That's right. I'll, she would do that for Hoda. She would. She, she would totally go would. to the mattresses for Hoda, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> what was that? 192 ratings. Are you we got a serious? Lot of, we need more ratings. We got to get that up eight at least to get to 200. All right. By the time you hear, eight hear this. Eight more ratings, people, please. Make it happen. And then, of course, you can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Greg Tito. I'm at Shelly Moo. And uh, we are very perceptive, uh, perceptive, receptive to feedback there. <laughs> and perceptive. And perceptive. We're yeah. very perceptive. Totally. Yeah, I got like a very high perception score. Yes. All right, so uh, check all that stuff out. We're going to jump into some lore right about now. We'll talk to uh, some of the D&D team to learn uh, about some Forgotten Realms lore right about now. Very cool. Welcome to Lore You Should Know. I am joined uh, once again uh, by Matt Cernet. Hi, Matt. Hi. How you doing? Pretty good. Good. And uh, Chris Perkins. Howdy. Hi, Chris. Um, this is the segment, a little bit newish on Dragon Talk, where we delve into uh, some of the fun lore of the Forgotten Realms that you may not be familiar with. Uh, and we have two of the experts in Forgotten Realms lore uh, here to uh, talk about things that uh, are of special significance for the Storm King's Thunder adventure coming in August uh, to those of you in game stores and uh, September 6th for all the rest of you. Uh, so before we jump into uh, Cloud Giants and Storm Giants today, uh, Matt, why don't you just give a quick uh, summation of what you do here at, at uh, D&D? Well, I pretty much do sort of the lore mastering thing. So knowing stuff about D&D is pretty much my job. And so I do a lot of that and I do some world building and story writing as well. Awesome. And uh, Chris, I know there's about uh, uh, three D&D fans who don't know what you do, but why don't you let us know uh, for those new listeners. Sure. Um, I am the uh, principal story designer for Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, It's basically my job to uh, plumb the endless depths of D&D lore to find things that can be the substance of our great stories going forward and then finding interesting ways to tell those stories and sharing those stories with our partners so that they can help us tell them as well. Nice. Um, and so Storm King's Thunder is a, uh, a story that's based on uh, the giants. And uh, last week or the week before, we talked about the ordning and how that uh, the giant gods shifted that uh, uh, at the start of this story. Uh, so let's go in and talk a little bit about some of the giant types. Um, so storm giants, uh, what can you guys tell us about, about them and, and the kind of the history of where they came from in D&D and to, and to where they're going to be in Storm King's Thunder? 
Well, Storm Giants have been around since first edition. Yeah, they, they go right back to the original Monster Manual. Yep, part of one of the original six, and they are the biggest of the bunch, and unusual insofar as their um, moral and ethical sort of positions in the cosmos, because whereas many of the giants are sort of go-to evil lugs, Storm Giants are... they. They typically bend toward the, the chaotic good alignment, which sort of sets them apart. Um, so, huge, big guys, but also they seem to have, you know, consciences and more a little bit more going on upstairs than some of their smaller kin. Mm-hmm. Right, and then with uh, the advent of things like legends and lore and monster mythology and stuff like that, and uh, then eventually... Um, the uh, I forgot Rome's Giants book, which again I'm forgetting the title. Giant Craft. Giant Craft. Thank you. Yep. <laughs> uh, they uh, there's sort of been uh, accreted onto them this lore of being the kinds of giants who care most about um, signs and visions, uh, so cloud patterns, stars, you know, birds flying different ways, that kind of a thing. So they sort of. The idea that they are a chaotic good and therefore not very well organized um, kind of flowed into this idea that they're also very removed and remote and um, that they are kind of doing their own thing and aren't really involved in the world and stuff like that. So right, so the uh, the small folk of uh, Third Forgotten Realms uh, and other D&D worlds would probably have the least first-hand accounts of dealing with storm giants out of all of the types. Right. I, I, I feel like they would be sort of like these, if you knew about them at all, if you knew there was a storm giant someplace, it would be sort of like that legendary oracle you know, up in the mountains kind of a thing that you might go to talk to if you're brave enough for that kind of a thing. But mm-hmm. it's, um, they have a really sort of fun, uh, mystical quality to them that's um, lacking in some of the other giants that are more sort of uh, brute force kind of foes, that kind of thing. Yeah, and they seem to also remove themselves from the affairs of the worlds at large. They, the places where they dwell are often the most far-flung from you know the bottom of the ocean to the top of the highest mountain kind of thing, or on the highest clouds. They don't deign to wander among small folk too often. And we, uh, 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 in Storm King's Thunder, the way we're depicting them is uh, very Hellenic or, or Greek in their, in their dress and mm-hmm. almost their style of... of uh, presentation as a way very, uh, you know, uh, Mount Olympus is kind of yeah. the feeling mm-hmm. I'm getting from mm-hmm. you. Now, was that always the case, or uh, is this? It, that's a throwback to first edition. Yeah, exactly. The original envision, envisioning of them, they looked like big giant men and women in togas. And yeah, it was Zeus basically exactly. over and over again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And did that come from uh, uh, the, you know, wanting to model that kind of power? That you know, that they were, you know, the, the puppet masters or. or on top of a mountain? I think that's kind of where it came from. Uh, I mean, I can't really speak to exactly what was going through. Uh, I guess it was Gygax's mind when he was making that, right? Um, but, uh, you know, that's certainly how it's played out throughout the products and so on over time is uh, that they are sort of these um, giants on Mount Olympus or at the bottom of this massive whirlpool or, you know, that kind of a thing. Uh, and that's certainly the way that we portray them, I think, in Storm Giants, uh, Thunders. Yeah. And uh, their city is, is underneath the, the ocean. is called Maelstrom, correct? Uh, it's not a city. It's a stronghold. Okay. Um, so it is, it is the seat of power for a particularly um, uh, august storm giant 
whose name is Hecaton. He has his family down there. But basically, it's just like any other stronghold of the storm giants. It just happens to be his. Uh, how many, uh, in the Forgotten Realms, how many uh, uh, different storm giant families are there? Oh, we don't say. Um, more than one, fewer than a thousand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fair. I mean, it's... Uh, I mean, canonically, can you point to a map and say where they are? No, not really. It's really kind of hard. We, uh, Forgotten Realms, like a lot of our D&D settings, it doesn't spend a lot of time telling you where the monsters live because that's kind of the DM's purview. So. Right. Yeah, but we do say in Storm King's Thunder, which is largely taking place on the Sword Coast, that there aren't um, an enormous number of families in the local area. I mean, most of the lesser giants seem to know Hecaton. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know where his nearest neighbor is. Does it work like a uh, a feudal system in a way, so that if King Hecaton is you know the the in charge of the the families that are near him, uh, do they owe him fealty, and then therefore that's why he's most supreme? Yeah, the the way the ordning kind of works is you know the biggest rule, um, the ones who have the, who have the most power to throw around, uh, generally are listened to more often than the ones who don't. Uh, and he's a big guy. He's 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 physically imposing. He's got a tremendous amount of magical power at his disposal. Uh, he's got a lot of allies. So uh, other giants, when he speaks, they listen to what he has to say, and they do what he says. It's when he's not around that they can indulge their other predilections. Yeah, and the ordning within type um, by giant is is different. Uh, so you know, for for storm giants, it's about signs and visions and that kind of a thing. Um, but uh, as with any sort of power, you know, you tend to um, place that on your chosen successors or your family members or that kind of a thing. You try, you try and sort of like keep it within the family. And, I, and I, I think giants would tend to do the same, even though they have these sort of outside ideas of, um, you know, well, like with cloud giants, basically it's it's bling. Like it's just show as much wealth as you possibly can. Be the have the best palace, have the best parties, have, give the best gifts, that kind of a thing. But somebody who's equipped to do that could then equip their children to do that. Who can then equip their children? Right. To, you know, right. that kind of a thing. So and so, okay. So you made the transition from from storm giants to to cloud giants. So uh, uh, in addition to them showing off their wealth, what uh, what else is is sets cloud giants apart from the other types? They've got a tradition of spell casting. Um, there's a good number of spell casting, mostly wizards mm-hmm. among the cloud giants. They seem to have a, a fondness for magic. Um, some of that is sort of part and parcel where they live with their big flying palaces and things like that. Uh, as Matt says, they love um, attention, uh, grandiose displays of wealth and magical power. Uh, I like that you call it bling. You're like, yeah, yeah. the bling is important. <laughs> they, yeah. There, there's an aristocratic sense of entitlement, mm-hmm. um, probably more so than any other group. It's hard being feeling so superior and knowing you're not quite at the pinnacle. And I think that drives a lot of competition uh, among cloud giants to ascend above their own peers and to ascend above all other forms of giant kind. It irks them to no end that they must obey uh, storm giants. Yeah, who who to them must seem like these just sort of, uh, you know... Scatterbrained. Scatterbrained, sort of <laughs> loosey-goosey kind of, you know, <laughs> Yes, yes. Um, they don't seem to uh, use all the things that the gods have given them, um, and that would naturally rub these cloud giants the wrong way. The other interesting thing historically about cloud giants is that they kind of go both ways, um, alignment-wise. 
roughly half of them are good and half of them are evil. And so you could imagine the inter-cloud giant politics to be enormously interesting. Because uh, you don't necessarily know when you meet one where they're, you know, which way they bend ethically. Right, right. And I, I like the idea, too, that cloud giants uh, are the Jack and the Beanstalk giant in a yes. way like that. You know, yeah. the, you ascended up to a, ba- a beanstalk into the clouds, and these are the ones that you, that you encountered. Um, it, it did that? Do you guys know if that was inspiration for, for Gygax when he was doing this well, kind that, of thing? Well, that goes way back as well. I mean, that's, I mean, the idea that cloud giants have up in their cloud castles, you know, uh, gardens or orchards or whatever with giant fruit and giant food um, is, is a really old idea. And that's, that's sort of part and parcel of the whole Jack and the Beanstalk story of, mm-hmm. you know, you, you get up there and there's these giant tables with giant plates of food on them, giant pumpkins, giant everything. <laughs> and uh, so that's, that's part of their, their whole story. It's, it's a lot of fun, that, those little bits and bobs of lore. Um, yeah. I also really like that with the current incarnation of Cloud Giants and uh, their sort of poster child deity who's Memnor, um, that we are taking that the character of Cloud Giants and putting it more into the deity of Memnor because in, in the past Memnor was basically like hey, he's evil and evil Cloud Giants worship him Rawr. and you know the good Cloud Giants um, there was there was sort of no uh, like it, it was sort of really hard to understand like why why some characters in this world would just decide to side with the really bad guy um, and be just super evil. Uh, when, you know, as a race, you understand that they're not all evil. They have a choice, obviously. Uh, so with this, we wanted Memnor to be more of um, uh, an unpredictable uh, trickster deity mm. who could be someone who deceives and goes both towards evil sometimes and yeah. good sometimes. More He's sort so. of a Yanis type, a two-faced god yeah. figure. And, you know, in, in mythology more, um, you know, if you go back to, like... Um, say Norse mythology right like he's someone who's more along the lines of say a Loki than mm. um, than just a straight up who who in Norse mythology isn't straight up evil all the time right right, right. we talked about that in the, uh, the last lawyer you know we right. were talking about the giant gods and their ordaining and how that's uh, interesting to change it up a little bit uh, and and you know for more drama uh, so uh, Cloud Giants specifically in, in Story Kings Thunder, what, uh, what is motivating them uh, as far as uh, having their ascendancy in the Ordning? So um, the Cloud Giants that you meet in Storm King's Thunder, they're obviously, like all the other giants, uh, many of them are taking advantage of the fact that they can pretty much do or act however they want. But the, the ones that you encounter in the, sto- in the course of the story are primarily interested in solidifying their place among their peers, above their peers, um, by looking for things um, in the world that they feel belong to them or uh, they're entitled to uh, ancient troves of dragon magic, lost Astorian relics, um, pretty much anything physical that sort of uh, embodies a bigger time, a greater time, or, or sort of conjures these romantic images of their past. If they can find these things and lay ownership of them, Claim, own, claim ownership of them, I mean, uh, then they can prove to the gods that they are worthy, that they respect the past, that they long for a greater day, the glory days of the ancient empires, mm-hmm. uh, that they really deserve to be on top. And there's, there's one cloud giant in particular in the story who's showcased. Uh, she's a countess who is after an ancient trove of dragon magic uh, because dragons and giants have got old enmities and 
Um, her problem is that she can't find it. Um, it's been thousands of years since she last charted courses or her family last charted courses over this land and so much has changed. Nothing is recognizable anymore. She can't find any way markers. She can't find any clues. All her maps are out of date. Uh, and so she's frustrated, horribly, horribly frustrated because she feels the pressure uh, uh, to deliver, uh, to find something, anything that right, she can right. use to gain a hold. Um, and there's only one way to get all that back is by destroying everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Or in her, her case, she, uh, you know, when you fly a big gigantic castle over the north, you're going to attract some attention, and she attracts the attention of a bronze dragon who doesn't know who she is or what she's about. Or, and uh, she captures it and starts to torture it for information. Interesting. Um, that's how sort of corrupt she is and the extent to which she will uh, do terrible things in order to further her own desires. And the characters kind of blunder into the middle of this. Cool. All right, well, I can't wait to, uh, to delve into uh, Storm of King's Thunder and uh, explore these two giant types. Very fascinating. Uh, and uh, you mentioned Giant Craft is a good uh, or a source to go back mm -hmm. to if you want yeah. to learn more uh, about that. What are some other sources uh, that people can check out uh, about Storm Giants and Cloud Giants in particular? Gosh, the, the Giants themselves, um, obviously there's all the old versions of the monster manuals and monster compendiums and that kind of a thing. Um, but I would say that honestly, the um, the monster, the fifth edition monster manual, uh, gets close to capturing what we're going for with um, giants going forward. And uh, you know, we have new projects on the horizon, but we can't talk about them now. So. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Thanks, you guys, uh, and uh, we'll be back next week with another segment of Lore You Should Know. That was some good lore with those people. <laughs> those people. They give great lore. I love those story guys. <laughs> We're going to jump into uh, a very exciting thing with our uh, CEO, Chris oh Cox, who's actually walking in right now. Perfect, perfect timing. Come on Entree. in. Entree. Yeah, we were, we were pre-recording an intro, but you oh, joined okay. up at the perfect Sorry, time. No worries. All right. So uh, welcome. Chris Cox, you are the new CEO of Wizards of the Coast. Oh, thanks, thanks. Technically, president. <laughs> president. Yes. Oh, is there what are the, what's the difference between the two in this case? Because sometimes <laughs> it's like president and CEO, and sometimes right. it's just one or the other. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm psyched with either though. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we leave the technical businessy things to to other folks who, who who get paid to do that stuff. Well, we're happy to have you. Oh, good. Know that you're. Maybe a little bit busy. Yeah, now. a little bit, a little bit. Just uh, meeting everyone across the organization. So lots and lots and lots of people. Well, this is Greg. I'm Shelley. So <laughs> you can cross us off your list. That's right. <laughs> nice to meet you guys. Met you know, I, made a, I made a promise that uh, I would give anyone lunch who I didn't I meet in the first 60 days. And do you so. know how many people have made a comment that I've heard like, I'm going to totally avoid him. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to try to not meet him because they just want well, the I'm lunch. Well, I'm doing everything I can to uh, avoid paying up. <laughs> you may have to like, follow some people out to their cars afterwards. Indeed. Yep. So we, uh, we met you in an all-hands meeting a, a few weeks ago, uh, and uh, we were struck by just how much uh, history you had with Dungeons & Dragons uh, uh, as a gamer, you know, and as a kid growing up. So We one felt of the, the love, for yeah. sure. Oh, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I started playing D&D &D when I was about eight years old. Wow. Um, I remember it was, uh, it was at my friend's house, Hans Schroeder, uh, who lived like <laughs> a street name. behind me, and uh, his older brother, Thad. Uh, was uh, was big into Dungeons and Dragons, and I remember playing it for the first time. And 
you know, I think I got uh, kind of hosed on my uh, character selection. <laughs> I think my, my charisma was something like a seven or an eight. Uh, but I had a ton of fun, and it just opened up a whole new world to me. Nice. So what was it about uh, 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 that specific session, or just as you did it more and more, that, that like latched onto you? Was it storytelling, or was it the, the min-maxing? What kind of a player are you? Well, when I was a little kid, um, I had a lot of uh, creative energy, uh, but not a lot of ways to be able to direct it. Um, you know, I had toys, I had Legos, uh, but I didn't really have anything that could really create things. Mm. You know, like today, you know, my son, who's also, he's nine now, uh, he's very similar to the way that I was. Uh, you know, very buoyant, lots of energy, uh, but man, just the number of options that kids have today to be able to direct that creative energy, whether it's encoding using Scratch uh, or a kind of content creation using platforms like Minecraft. Mm -hmm. right. uh, a lot more uh, options than uh, a little kid from the Midwest. And when I saw Dungeons and Dragons and I saw uh, my buddy's older brother just be able to like weave a story real time and for me to be able to create a character and be able to participate in creating that story, that was, uh, that was transformational for me. Suddenly... Um, you know, I started being interested in reading. Uh, mm, yeah. I wanted to consume books for the first time ever. I wanted to start actually designing my own kind of games and my own game concepts. And it was like kind of like, uh, it was almost like discovering a part of your brain mm. uh, that you knew was there and was kind of chattering in the background, but you gave direction to it and you gave connectivity to it. Um, and you know, like, you know, I started playing D&D pretty regularly when I was a kid. Um, you know, it, it was a little difficult sometimes to find friends to be able to play with. Um, and it certainly was uh, difficult to put my allowance money together to buy books. <laughs> so um, I found different avenues that were a lot like D&D. So like, you know, one of the first book series I started reading uh, was these books called Fighting Fantasies. Um, it's, uh, I don't think I've ever, ever heard of those. Is it like a choose-your-own-adventure type thing? Yeah, it was like a choose-your-own-adventure uh, merged with a D&D campaign. Okay. Um, I think it was Ian Livingston and Steve Jackson uh, from the Games Workshop in the UK oh, wow. who oh, okay. were the authors for them. No way. I didn't know Steve Jackson wrote books. Yeah, yeah. He actually, uh, you can actually buy them still today. I got a bunch oh, cool. for my son for Christmas uh, oh, of no. like kind of reprints of what I bought when I was a little kid. Oh, and basically, you would, uh, it was a simplified Dungeon and Dragon system. Uh, you'd uh, create a character. That character would have really simple attributes, mm -hmm. and uh, they actually would print uh, dice on the bottom of every page. And so you'd read the book, and you'd have fights, or you'd have like tests of luck or skill, and you could actually just flip pages and go to like a different dice roll on each of the pages. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. I remember a series called uh, Lone Wolf. Yeah, that very similar, similar to like Lone Wolf. Yeah, uh, I think Lone Wolf came a little after. I remember okay. seeing that when I so was they probably took like eleven or twelve. Um, yeah, uh, so it was probably inspired. It was yeah. uh, everything seems to be kind of inspired by that original Dungeons and Dragons idea. It's true, yeah. it's inspired a lot. But I uh, I love that, and then I started graduating into uh, you know higher fantasy. Uh, you know, like the Dragonlance novels uh, were really big. Um, Terry Brooks was probably like my first kind of uh, big kid. Uh, book to read. I remember reading uh, The Sword of Shannara. That took me 
that took me a couple years. I started <laughs> reading when I was nine, kind of got about a hundred oh pages when you were in. Nine? Yeah, <laughs> I started you were your yeah. son's age. Can you imagine yeah. him reading that book? I didn't finish it until I was twelve, though. So uh, <laughs> I think you I had to pick it up in a couple. Sure. Yeah, I think I had to pick it up in a couple different instances. And that nine to twelve is a very formative time yeah. Yeah. too. Yeah. So the the references that Terry Brooks put in there probably didn't make as much sense when no, you were nine. But no. when you were twelve, you were like, oh, all right, I'm gonna okay. go back. That's kind of cool. I think by that time he'd come out with like the Wish Song of Sonara. So when I was able to finish. Was it the Wish Song? I think it's the Wish Song was number two. So mm. when I was able to finish the Sword of Shinar, I was able to pick up some of the books two and three. And now, gosh, I mean, he's got dozens of books now. Yeah, yeah. I remember meeting him in Costco uh, one day, and it was like finding out one of, finding one of my heroes. So. Right, he's local, right? Yeah, Isn't he, he is. in West Seattle too? I think, I think he is. In West oh, Seattle. he's in West Seattle. Yeah, oh, neat. Yeah, I believe so. I think he splits time between here and like Hawaii. At least that's what his website tells me. That's what I'll do. Yeah, when, he was whenever I write my he was 19th definitely in the Kirkland book. Costco one time about five or six years ago. <laughs> <laughs> what was he buying? <laughs> he was there a for a book signing. Ironically, oh, okay. Yeah. Costco does book signings. Yeah, it was one of the the later, uh, it was one of the later Shannara books, I think, or maybe it was one of like his. Uh, I think maybe it was like Knights of the Word. Do you guys, do you guys follow Terry Brooks? I, I read uh, a Sword of Shannara and then I kind of fell off. Oh gosh, she's got point. massive numbers of series. Anyway, I'm a yeah. big fan. I just love the fact that he would be getting like toilet paper and, and <laughs> free and, samples and s'mores. Right? How do you like, think he yeah. affords a house in Hawaii? It's yeah, very totally, true. Dummy. Yeah, totally. <laughs> maybe, uh, <laughs> maybe he picked that up after the book signing. Yeah. 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 <laughs> nice. So, uh, uh, what kind of character classes do you kind of like gravitate towards? I mean, I think you asked us this uh, when we met uh, a week ago. But what, what, what do you? What's, yeah. Yeah. So what's, I was born uh, in the early '70s, and so probably one of the most formative movie, two of the most formative movies of my. Uh, you know, early like late childhood or early adolescence were Star Wars and uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark and the Indiana Jones series. So, you know, kind of growing up, Harrison Ford was kind of like that iconic uh, roguish actor. And, uh, you know, I think that's why I like playing rogue. Um, when I multi-class uh, a rogue fighter, mm. uh, you know, someone who... Uh, is brash and uh, charismatic, uh, kind of a center of attention, uh, but at the same time has to use kind of brains and skill and isn't just all about uh, brawn and bashing people's heads in. So, uh, you know, I think I've been playing with the same name of character for like the last 20 years. He's a hap traveler uh, is the the name of my character, and he's always some form of uh, rogue fighter. Hap? H-A-P? Like, yeah, Hap Traveler. That's, is that uh, short for something, or is that his No, his I just name? thought it was kind of a cool-sounding, kind of, you know, one of those uh, 1930s serial-style yeah, names that uh, Star Wars or uh, Indiana Jones is yeah. based off of. Like a Dirk or a... Yeah, totally, <laughs> yeah. totally, totally. I love that. <laughs> That's yeah. cool. Sounds like kind of a fortune hunter. Did you ever DM as well, or mostly always as a player? I did a bit. Um, you know, as I said, I didn't have a lot of money growing up, so a lot of my DMing was actually kind of taking the rules of D&D and uh, building my own kind of hybrid game system. So oh. I would like kind of write my own monster books, and I'd write my own monster manuals and kind of build my own things, particularly like when I was like you know, 11, 12, 13. Right, so like your teachers, your parents, everybody must have been like, what happened? Like all of a sudden, you said you weren't much of a reader, or and all yeah, you discovered D yeah. and D, and all of a sudden it just kind of started sparking books. together. I remember like in second grade, um, you know, like the reading tests you'd get like when you're in yeah. early grade school, and I remember yeah. getting, I, I knew how to read because I remember getting like these flashcard tests, and you know, you'd read all the flashcards yeah. that they put up, and you'd go through it pretty fast. 
And then they put me into a reading group, and uh, I just had no interest in uh, you know reading what they'd assigned me because it wasn't anything that was in- I was interested in. It wasn't fantasy. It wasn't science fiction. I was like, you know, hey, where's the flashcards? Because that was kind of fun. <laughs> right. Uh, but it really took something like Dungeons and Dragons to kind of like uh, gear me towards something that I actually was into, and then my OCD took over. Nice. We do hear that story, a similar story, a lot from teachers and librarians. Yeah, and it's amazing how many employees I've heard that story Mm. from here. Just the number of people who, um, you know, had that kind of late 70s, early to mid 80s experience with Dungeons and Dragons. And it lit the spark of storytelling and, uh, you know, wanting to create worlds. And I think that's that's really kind of something that bonds together a lot of people here at Wizards of the Coast. Yeah, they do have the similar... The story, the similar origin story. Very true. All right, so I got two things before. I know we don't have that much time with you, but uh, one, I know one thing that came up uh, uh, when you, when you were announced as the uh, the new president of, of Wizard of the Coast was that you were uh, a novelist on your own right. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, yeah, t- tell us to everybody a little bit about uh, uh, you know your your fourth career. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you know, I, I my kids are now nine and eleven. Um, but even to my nine-year-old, we continue to read uh, to him at bedtime, uh, you know, at least occasionally. And probably starting around the age of uh, four for my daughter and about the similar age for my son, we started kind of getting out of picture books and getting into a little bit more sophisticated uh, kind of, you know, young adult or middle grade fair. Um, and so, you know, we've done Harry Potter and a bunch of like Percy Jackson and like the Ranger Apprentice series, etc. And I found that, uh, you know, reading these stories with my kids and kind of acting out the characters and acting out the worlds with them was a lot of fun. And uh, I thought it might be fun to actually write something that they would like and, you know, kind of uh, base it a little bit off of our day-to-day activities or things that might have happened to us on the weekends or when we go on like a little weekend trip. And um, I came up with a a book idea called uh, The Monster Squad. And it's basically about a bunch of kids who are kind of like, a, you know, the aspirational age of my kids. So like late middle school, mm-hmm. early high school. And originally it was just to kind of have a lark and read it to my kids at night. And, uh, you know, they actually kind of liked it. And we read it to some of their friends and they liked it. And so I formalized it a bit and came out with a book and published it, oh, about a year and a half, two years ago. Nice. And uh, uh, so we, we want to push book sales to it now. So where can they, where can they find this? <laughs> Well, I, uh, I write it under my pseudonym, uh, Christian Page, uh, and you can go to Amazon or uh, Apple uh, Books or uh, Barnes & Noble. might be available in your local bookstore, but probably more reliably on those. It's called Monster Squad, The Iron Golem. Um, and then book two, uh, I managed to plink out. Uh, that'll be coming out in the next month or two. Oh, cool. uh, and that one's called uh, Monster Squad, Jekyll and Hyde. Cool. So you're going into this like uh, uh, old school, uh, what uh, the picture company that uh, Columbia Pictures that did all the monster movies is kind of following that, or is it? Yeah, just- yeah, yeah. You know, I was in I uh, I I've worked a lot in technology, but I was an English major uh, uh, in college, and uh, one of the things I was really fascinated by as an English major was the the whole archetype of uh, the monster uh, and or the robot in, uh, in early uh, kind of gothic horror novels and modern science fiction. So a lot of like uh, Mary Shelley and Isaac Asimov and uh, Edgar Allan Poe and everyone kind of in between. And uh, that always kind of stuck with me and I thought it would be fun 
you know, kind of taking a riff off of what Rick Riordan does uh, right. with uh, Greek gods and, you know, taking like kind of like uh, stories from antiquity, going a little further uh, into hit, going a little more modern and contemporary in history and looking at like, you know, the great Gothic writers and the great science fiction writers and uh, taking those characters and turning them into something that was contemporary that, you know, an 8, 10, uh, 12 year old boy or girl might find fun. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, instead of necessarily pitting the monsters as the bad guys, you know, actually using them as a, uh, a frame for powers that the good guys might have. And then, uh, you know, maybe battle. It's kind of like a, a little bit of a battle between classic monsters and modern science fiction, with uh, the classic monsters being more the good guys and classic science fiction being more the bad guys. So cool. Yeah, so cool. sounds really good. Yeah, it was fun Let's to write. Uh, I certainly got some some good reviews, and so uh, and uh, a couple people actually picked up the book. So uh, that was always it's always gratifying to hear when people like it. Nice. Will there be a book three? We'll see how book two um, we'll goes. We'll see how book two yeah, goes. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I started plinking. I, I took about a couple months off before I started here at Wizards, and I started writing uh, a different book just for fun. But uh, you know, I got about oh probably a third to halfway through with that. But uh, I got to focus on career number one before I uh, continued focusing on career number two. Well, so maybe nice. in 2017, 2018, you'll probably see find else. a lot of inspiration. Yes, from working at here for yes. sure. So you yes. came uh, most directly from from Microsoft. Uh, so a lot of people were talking about, uh, uh, you know, your technology expertise and bringing that to uh, uh, the gaming uh, spaces, specifically here at Wizard of the Coast for, for D&D and Magic and all the other brands that are here. So can you talk, you know, real quick a little bit about that, about what, you know, what do you think the future of, 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 of D&D uh, in particular is, is going to be? Yeah, you know, uh, I started working at Microsoft in 1999, um, and I started working on the PC games team, and that quickly uh, translated into the one of the, one of the first folks who were on Xbox. And what what's funny is what actually got me to uh, Microsoft was in 1998. I think uh, Baldur's Gate came out, nice. and uh, you know I'd kind of put down games a little bit uh, after I graduated from college because I was doing my first job. And I really started picking up games in a big way after Baldur's Gate came out again. And I credit that with kind of getting me into the video game industry. And, you know, when I look back at, you know, all the great Dungeons and Dragons uh, iterations, whether they're novels or, uh, you know, the classic RPG or board games, or particularly video games, um, I would love for us to uh, continue to express that in a digital domain. You know, I remember in the 80s playing Pools of Radiance. Um, I had Balder, and then there were a series of other games that I played on my, uh, my Epson, uh, kind of IBM clone. Uh, and I, I always remember fondly uh, going into Babbage's and just uh, oogling at the, the graphics Babbage's. of the Amiga. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I played all those Dungeons & Dragons games back in the 80s and early 90s. Baldur's Gate, Baldur's Gate 2, Neverwinter Nights, nice. uh, those amazing games, uh, particularly in the Bioware era. And, you know, I would love to capture that magic again for Dungeons and Dragons. You know, I think um, whether it's the PC, the iPad, uh, the iPhone, Android OS, there's so many great expressions uh, that we could have of Dungeons and Dragons. You know, just look at the board games that you can get in any hobby shop today. Those mm-hmm. would be amazing games on a tablet experience. Uh, 
you know, as a matter of fact, one of my favorite games on my iPad for the last couple of years have been Lords of Waterdeep. Such a yep. great game. I think it's a fab fabulous uh, transliteration of yeah. the board game. Playdeck did a great job. Yeah, they did an awesome job. And so, you know, I think, you know, the strength of the D&D brand is it is so uh, widely known by so many people. And it is, it's a brand that's really known for high fantasy. It's a brand that's known for great storytelling. But at the same time, it's not limited in what kind of play that you could have. Right. You could have a MOBA, you could have an MMO, you could have kind of a casual, almost kind of like interactive comic book. You could have uh, a classic RPG, you could have an action kind of RPG. And I'm really excited to work with the team on exploring what that could be. And uh, I mean, I think the another great thing about D&D is there's a lot of nostalgia for it mm -hmm. among game developers. Like a lot of developers started on their gaming career uh, because of Dungeons and Dragons and were inspired by that. And I think there's a lot of uh, latent creativity out there and latent uh, demand among creators to help us build a game. Absolutely, yeah. So it inspires reading, it inspires game design. Yeah, D&D inspires everything. Yeah. Life, like life choices life. I've made have all been inspired. Yeah, I don't know. I'm like, all right, I guess I'm getting married. <laughs> okay. Yeah, roll the twenty. We'll have a kid. Sure. <laughs> Two of them. <laughs> if, uh, yeah, if my, my, my wife might not think childbirth was that easy, but uh, <laughs> yeah, you would have failed your, your, your saving throw against a uh, wife, wife yeah. aggro if you say that. Yeah, There's indeed, not enough indeed. charisma in the world. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming down to uh, to talk to us. It was uh, it was great, and uh, hopefully we'll have you on again. And you know, yeah. we'll as, as after you get a little bit of your you know the runway of of, of learning about uh, uh, how Wizard of the Coast operates and stuff, we'll be able to. Uh, talk more and dive into more uh, deeply in these topics. Yeah, thanks, guys. And, uh, you know, I'd love to hear more about what our fans have to say. What do they want to see from Dungeons and Dragons? Where do they want us to take the franchise? And how do they want us to express it? Because I think, you know, fans have some of the best ideas about where we can go. So we, awesome. uh, we have some awesome fans. So and not they will tell you. They will tell they you. Will I was just going to say, you. they tell us uh, <laughs> the uh, on, Twitter, <laughs> on Twitter all the time. Do they have a, uh, is there like a, a, an outlet that they can get in touch with you? Is there, what's the best way to kind of get you that feedback? Well, I think, uh, I think through like our D&D &D, uh, fan communication channels, whether it's Twitter, whether it's blogs that we do, um, you know, that's probably the best way to bring things together. You know, I, I believe uh, the best way uh, to communicate, um, especially in large groups of people who are really passionate fans, is uh, it's not necessarily individually, it's together. Right. Uh, because together you can form a chorus. And, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's louder and actually sounds uh, even better and helps to really drive ideas home. Nice. And I'll look for you, uh, your uh, at Christian Page uh, Twitter handle that you're going to be creating <laughs> right after this interview <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, to yeah. give you feedback on your books for sure. <laughs> okay. Uh, awesome. Great. Thanks yeah, so much. Thank you, guys. Yeah, thank right. you. I think that was super amazing uh, that the new president of Wizards of the Coast was able to come down and talk to us. He just... Like, he's got nothing else going on. Right. He's learning so much right now. Mm -hmm. Like, he's absorbing everything about uh, uh, the business, about our he games. He said yes to our podcast. Like he could have easily said, you know what, give me a couple months, whatever, and, like, blew us off and right. never really did it. There was none of that. He said yes right away. Like, he really wanted to do it. And he was really good. It was really good talking to him. And I really, like, he genuinely is a D&D &D guy. Because when, when we heard him talk, just, you know, to the in the company meeting, yeah. you could... You could tell, like he was telling his origin story, and he was like back there, and smiling and remembering, and the names of his buddies, and 
it, it was cool. Yeah, yeah. He remembers their names. It's like it's all it's all there. Yeah, so yeah. cool. Well, I'm really glad uh, to see his tenure begin and yep. uh, we'll see what happens with Withers Coast going forward. It's going to be very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited to I see love it. it. Well, um, uh, Dungeons and Dragons is uh, cool. a game that's out there. <laughs> you can find out about it at DungeonsandDragons.com. Dungeons and Dragons is. Uh, if you want to uh, let us know more ways that you can talk, uh, people you can talk to on the... You're nervous. You're nervous. It's not all. It usually just comes out, and it's not coming out right now. Uh, if you have any ideas for new guests that we can have on the podcast, yes. please let me know on Twitter. I'm at Greg Tito. Shelly, where are you at? At Shelly Moo. Shelly Moo. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, of course, there's at Wizards underscore D and D. Avalon that. Hill two. Avalon Hill number two. two. That's where you get all of your Avalon Hill board game news. Yep. Um, we'll find out more about Betrayal uh, and the expansion of House on the Hill in the next uh, few months. Yeah, October fourteenth. Yeah. October fourteenth is coming out. Yeah. Yeah. So we're gonna have at least one, maybe two, maybe let's say like an entire month of podcast devoted solely to it, Mike Slinker's brain. It might be, that might be all you get for like a month. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's all I'm going to be thinking Which about. Which makes total sense because I'm, I'm excited about it for sure. Okay, good. Awesome. All right, yeah. well, thank you, everyone. Uh, please rate us and give us a, a, a nice review on iTunes. Uh, that definitely helps us out. Um, but even if you have some constructive feedback, hey, send it, that in send there it too. to Greg. Yeah, just send it right to me. Just right to Greg. And uh, I right will read it aloud voice. to Shelley. In, uh, <laughs> in a voice. In her, yes, exactly. Special voice. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks, you guys. Okay. See you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.